1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Genocide Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host today, Jeff Bachman, a senior lecturer at the American University School of International Service. Thank you all for listening. Today, I'll be talking to Randall DeFalco about his book, Invisible Atrocities, The Aesthetic Biases of International Criminal Justice, published by Cambridge University Press in March of 2022. Randall, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot for having me. Thanks for joining me. And uh, can you start us off by telling our listeners a bit about yourself?
1: Uh, So I am a legal scholar by training. Um, uh, I research atrocity, international criminal law, um, and I've done a fair amount of work, including field work in Cambodia, looking at kind of post-atrocity justice seeking there. And I'm currently an assistant professor of law at the University of Hawaii at Manoa's William S. Richardson School of Law.
2: Great. Thanks for sharing that with us. And uh, I was going to save this question till the end, but I kind of want to kind of go with the flow here. You talked about your wall background. Uh, So I'm going to start off with a big question. What utility does the wall have, especially considering what you talk about in your book?
1: I think that is a big question. And it's one that I'm often grappling with. Um, I think it depends on whether or not first we're speaking about kind of what kind of law, right? Criminal law is the focus of just kind of what I've mostly researched, international criminal law um, versus any other array of kind of legal mechanisms that could be used as kind of components of redress or um, prevention even of atrocity violence and things like that. So when it comes to international criminal law, I vacillate on this a lot. Um, I'm increasingly skeptical of its utility. I think that it could have some utility, but I think that that is marginal. And I think whatever marginal utility it has is constantly at risk of being kind of evacuated through the process of it kind of taking up all of the space. Right. Like it's I think it's a, at best limited utility, but is treated as the first, best and, uh, and even worse, often sole response in the wake of mass atrocities. And I think that it can do some things in a limited way to some people and for some people <laughs> at best. Um, and yet it's often treated as kind of the best best and perhaps only appropriate response. Um, so I'm in the strange position of being a person who all of my training is in law, um, but I'm pretty skeptical about its utility. <laughs> hmm. I can, I understand. I,
2: uh, you know, my, my doctor was interdisciplinary and I took school you know classes at the law school, including international human rights law. Um, but when I teach my course on the politics of genocide, uh, you know we spend a lot of time talking about how politics has influenced you know the shaping of the wall, the development, the future uh developments after say the genocide convention um you know the the politics of naming and recognition and and so on, and so the wall starts to feel like a Tool more than an instrument. I don't know if that really makes sense, but uh, seems like it's more something that states use, uh, especially the more powerful states. Um, and I, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. But I also wanted to ask you because you you talk about Cambodia in in your book, and I recently interviewed Alex Hinton about his book, The Anthropological Witness, uh, and I was wondering did the wall serve a purpose in the eccc um what, are there things that uh are, is there evidence from that that international criminal wall can um have good outcomes uh, yeah sorry i'm rambling a bit but what are your thoughts on any of that
1: yeah i think there's a lot to unpack there and i'm familiar with some but i I confess um not all of alex's work being the, the kind of sprawling universe that his work is um especially in relation to cambodia um and i think you know with the tribunal having wound down being essentially completely finished now um i think it leaves a lot of questions still open and Uh, In terms of what the tribunal has accomplished, when I've had discussions with kind of other folks in the area of transitional justice and human rights who study Cambodia, it seems that um, the one thing that comes up the most in terms of a kind of positive contribution to contemporary Cambodia and post-atrocity justice seeking that the tribunal may have done was just getting people talking about that history because it had been a kind of taboo subject and often not even taught in schools and just something people didn't talk about and that being a useful thing. Now, could that have happened without... You know, the hundreds of millions of dollars of expenditure, the years, um, what I think of as a very corrosive effect on the rule of law in terms of the example the tribunal set for Cambodia with all of the extra legal, very dubious decision making that it demonstrated to the Cambodian uh, population. I think probably yes. (laughs) Um, And I think lots of organizations have been trying to do that work, but they didn't have the kind of platform that came with, you know, a United Nations hybrid tribunal and uh, the kind of international effort and resources put into the court. Um, so I think it did do some things, um, but it I think that it was not only positives. I think there's costs involved and not just the cost of money. Right. I think it's a very mixed bag. Um, and I think that it is likely to be one of the tribunals, kind of like the special panels and these Timor increasingly like the special court for Sierra Leone that are kind of just buried and <laughs> um, uh, with the focus being on the ICC and then uh, before that Rwanda and the former Yugoslavia as the kind of exemplars of international criminal justice. Not sure if that answered your question.
2: (laughs) It it did. and I, you know, now that we have that, we can take a step back and, uh, I, you know, the audience at this point doesn't really know just what your book is about yet. So um, <laughs> <laughs> let's start with the, the cover design. I like to start with the, the cover. Uh, I, I, I really like the cover of your book. And um, can, you, can you kind of describe it for the audience and um, connect it to the title and the content of your book? And, and also, were you an active participant in that design?
1: Um, Sure. I'm happy to talk about it. So um, I'm very pleased with it as well. This is a book that I'm very happy to be judged by its cover. Um, So I was very involved in the, the cover. Um, I think it'll be clear why I was very concerned, um, considering I'm talking about aesthetics. I knew people were going to be looking at it intensely. Um, and also that, you know, as I'm sure we'll discuss, I'm a big critic of what I think is this kind of dominant atrocity aesthetic. And when I started looking for images that I could get licenses to on the front of the book most of them were just reproductions of the very aesthetic that i was critiquing as being kind of overarching and dominating and obscuring everything else when it comes to atrocity so you know images that were suggested at various times were you know piles of literal piles of skulls razor wire bullets bones those kinds of things right very visceral imagery um and i was deciding you know with also my incredibly limited budget of zero dollars um for <laughs> book book cover imagery um i was trying to find something else and eventually i came across um this a, a piece that just really struck me and it is so i'll describe it a little bit for the readers um it's a piece. Uh, it's an untitled piece by artist who's an artist who's a Holocaust survivor named Sages Stoika. I'm probably massacring her name. I'm sorry for that. Um, the front of the piece, um, which is what features on the cover of the book, it depicts the eyes of people in hiding. And if you have to kind of look close to see the eyes, and it's very colorful. Um, uh, the back of the piece, which doesn't feature on the book, includes text and other imagery. So it's a two-sided piece of art. Um, I think it's on canvas. I haven't seen the original. Among the texts are names of family members, um, expressions of fear of Nazi terror, as well as, um, perhaps most importantly for me, anxieties about food, expressions of anxieties about food. So the first lines of the text that are especially relevant to the themes of the book that appear on the back um, read, and this is translated... by the Sages Stoika Foundation. Her family owns the piece, and I was very fortunate um, that the foundation consulted with the family, and they were very happy for me to use it. Um, and so it reads Auschwitz, a place without fruit. Dear God, where's the bread and sausage? Bread and sausage, sausage being in all caps. Uh, there was none of that in Auschwitz. Um, so for me, both the image of the people hiding of the hiddenness and obscured visibility itself, right? Along with the text's focus on the lack of food really help crystallize and represent the interconnectedness of various forms of oppression and violence um, from the spectacular to the everyday that I try to explore in the book. And then combined with the kind of striking image of obscured faces, which are hiding yet recognizable if we look closely, This emphasis on everyday experiences of atrocity violence, kind of when she's talking about the lack of food, encapsulates much of what I've I've tried to convey, which is that if we are only able to look more carefully, maybe free from our aestheticize and other preconceptions regarding what atrocity crimes are, we may see certain overlooked forms of violence and oppression as atrocities, that is, as potential international crimes. So Stoika herself was a survivor of perhaps, of course, the most paradigmatic atrocity of all, Nazi concentration camps and the genocide, but she was a Roma woman, right? So, and as a Roma woman, she was a member of a largely overlooked class of victims. And so to me, the backgrounding of certain atrocities underscores the fact that as individuals and societies, we choose what we see and how we interpret and prioritize harm and suffering. The book focuses on a subset of other atrocity crimes that have remained largely obscured. Um, And the ones I look at are those committed through means lacking the kind of dramatic spectacles of violence that are currently, I think, and I argue, (laughs) associated with dominant social and legal understandings of atrocity and international crime.
2: Thanks, Randall. And so as long as we're on that, um, you, you, you mentioned um you know what what the focus is but what are some examples of invisible atrocities this could be uh within cases uh other broader human rights violations what what are some examples um and then uh you know you, you also talked about this already a little bit just now but um just for the audience what de- can you define the atrocity aesthetic
1: yeah sure um so maybe in I'll I think the easiest way to explain that is kind of how I came to writing the book um, because I didn't really set out thinking about aesthetics. So this kind of goes back to my days as a law student um, and I was really interested in international law, human rights, atrocity and redress, um, these kind of big questions of global justice and international justice when I was in law school and I was very fortunate to get some funding and I spent a summer in law school in Cambodia working with the Documentation Center of Cambodia, which many readers, uh, sorry, listeners, (laughs) would be uh, familiar with if they know anything about um, Cambodia. It's an organization that is local. It's a Cambodian staffed organization that started out of a fund at Yale but is now all in Cambodia. And they document the history of um, both the Khmer Rouge history, but also kind of more generally Cambodia's history of atrocity and oppression uh, with a special focus on the Khmer Rouge history from 1975 to 79. But they're also kind of do transitional justice work, outreach. They work with victims, both perpetrators and survivors and, you know, perpetrator victims, all those um, messy <laughs> um, categories that bleed into one another. And so it's a kind of long-winded way of saying how I came to this is I was there and um, one of my roles, and I, I went back, I was pretty fortunate after I graduated to get a Fulbright to go back. And I went back specifically to research famine, the, the famine that occurred under the Khmer Rouge and how that might figure into legal forms of justice seeking. Um, including those that might occur at the Extraordinary Chambers in the Courts of Cambodia, also known as the Khmer Rouge Tribunal that we kind of discussed earlier. Um, And so the reason I was really interested in this was because at other times, I was involved in kind of grassroots outreach activities, um, where the center would have these kind of forums that were often very far deep in the countryside um, and I just went to kind of watch, write the report, um, but also my other role would be to answer questions about the court, because um, I had read a lot about it. And the question I was asked very, very often was, will it, it being the court, prosecute them, being former Khmer Rouge officials and leaders and suspects, um, for starving us, for overworking us, for separating us from our families? Um, And it was very clear, and then I had lots of discussions with uh, my colleagues about exactly what was meant by this, but that that this was an experience that at least the survivors experienced as a crime, as something perpetrated actively against them. Um, And it was amazingly at the forefront of many people's mind, including people who had been put in jail, people who had been beaten, um, that this was the main question. And I thought at the time... Probably not <laughs> but I didn't really know why it was it kind of was it a question of feasibility you know is there a lack of law lack of evidence um, is it a question of willpower is it a question of, of what is it a question of and so doing graduate work first a master's and then a doctorate um, I kind of led me to the why question and that's what led me to aesthetics because I was I, I, I spent a lot of time convincing myself that there was sufficient law to at least, address components of this. Uh, I wrote some stuff um, about um, you know, crimes against humanity, specifically those of extermination, um, persecution, and other inhumane acts as a kind of tripartite um, possible avenue for seeking accountability for this famine, which was very directly caused and, in my view, perpetrated. Um, and I was satisfied both By looking through available evidence in the form of, like, memos, Khmer Rouge era memos about rice transfers and and secondary sources, and looking at the law that this appeared feasible and that the culpability involved was, in my view, often more direct for the senior leaders than it was for some of the killings locally um, at kind of smaller local prisons and things like that, right? Where local officials had a lot of discretion in who they chose to, you know, abuse and kill. And so I was presenting that and thinking about it, and I was always kind of this, getting this question of like, yeah, but that's not really what it's about, right? That's not really what international criminal law is about. It's not what it does. That's not really an international crime, And I was wondering why, (laughs) you know, why? So then that's what led me to thinking about, and it was kind of uh aha, like, it just doesn't look right was the kind of simpler version of these often very convoluted questions I was asked. It doesn't look like what we're used to. It's not what we do. And then, so I thought, well, what does, an international crime you know colloquially an atrocity look like um and and that's what led to me looking at that and the atrocity aesthetic and so i um <clears throat> i did a bunch of reading as we do um I did some thinking and talking, especially with my colleagues um, at DC Cam and some of my colleagues at the University of Toronto, where I was doing my graduate work and other people. And I kind of, through a meandering path, I started reading about aesthetics and thinking about it aesthetically. So in terms of the atrocity aesthetic, I use the term aesthetic kind of in two main ways. Like The first is a kind of... Um, sensory paradigmatic model right like a cubist aesthetic is a particular has you have to conform to it if you're going to do something in a cubist style right um so describe this kind of cluster of um sensory experiences we associate with a certain category of things right so that that's one way um and then also i think about it i was reading some of the work um of Jacques Ranciere, a, a French um, theorist who is very French. So <laughs> not a lot of footnotes and not a lot of explanation, but the one thing that did strike me was describing um, the aesthetic, uh, aesthetics as the partition of the sensible in terms of the kind of social and political processes through which um, what is understandable or legible is is determined within a given society or grouping or whatnot. And so I kind of was thinking about th- those. Um, and I came up with what I thought was the kind of, I started think trying to describe what I thought the paradigmatic um, aesthetic of an atrocity is. Um, and so the basic notion um, when I refer to the atrocity aesthetic is a notion that there exists, I argue, this kind of dominant yet often unstated kind of shared understanding, um, both among kind of actors loosely defined within international criminal justice and transitional justice worlds, but also the wider public um, of both atrocity and international crime, um, and that that notion and understanding is associated deeply with spectacular acts of horrific violence and abuse, um, that kind of when we are exposed to, um, typically visually, but also in other ways, um, elicit this kind of visceral reaction that this is horrible, this is bad, this is wrong, um, this is the worst of the worst. Um, And so it's a very visceral aesthetic um, grounded in spectacular acts of horrific violence. Um, And I think that that shapes assumptions concerning how genocide, crimes against humanity, and war crimes can and will manifest themselves and the means through which they can be committed. So I'm not, I know that was a bit rambly, but uh, I think I might have answered multiple <laughs> questions, including some you didn't ask.
2: <laughs> That's great. Um, so there's a couple of things I was thinking of um, related to this. Um, you know, I actually did ask Alex Hinton how central the crime of genocide was to the actual implementation of the, the you know, the Khmer Rouge Tribunal or the Khmer Tribunal. Um, would you know i know there was other physical integrity violations there's torture um, do you think genocide was the charge of genocide was central to there being a tribunal and and i ask this for two reasons one I, i'm curious because you know we can think about the different atrocity crimes and you know, whether there maybe is even a hierarchy among the, the atrocity crimes but but also I mean you described famine um, and also uh, the intentions behind the acts that led to people starving and you know genocide includes deliberately causing conditions that do not facilitate life and um, you know which gets that to a, another question and sorry now I'm asking too many things at once but you know within the atrocity crimes, there are things that do not fit the atrocity aesthetic. And so it's another question again, why does an international criminal law necessarily, um, you know, sort of, incorporate the full body of the wall when it is uh, approaching these atrocity situations. Uh, that was probably too much at once,
1: but uh, did you get everything in any? Um- I think so. Why don't, why don't I take a stab and then you can kind of redirect me as needed. Okay. Um, so when it comes to the creation of the court, I think there's always this allure of, you know, what David Sheffer calls the G word, right. The, of genocide, the creation of the court, I'm not an expert on the creation of the court. I've read it's, it is a very long and protracted negotiation process over years that I have read about, but I don't pretend to be, you know, a special expert on. I defer to Alex there. Um, but when it comes to the practice of the court, you know, just by necessity, genocide was a. if you wanted to kind of divvy it up in terms of number of days of hearings, amount of evidence, um, number of significance in terms of overall percentage of the judgments and number of victims, genocide was very tangential, um, because it was largely a crimes against humanity court. Um, so, you know, if you think about, you know, it wasn't, didn't have a lot to do with war crimes, although there were some war crimes cause there was these skirmishes with, um, the Vietnamese across the border, um, but there was, these were not atrocities that took place during any kind of armed conflict, right? Um, and crimes against humanity being a widespread systematic or systematic attack against the civilian population, I mean, that really fits the bill for the Khmer Rouge regime's abuse of Cambodians, right? Um, work camps, abuse, um, starvation, prisons, all those things, right? So most of the judgments focused on crimes against humanity as the core set of crimes that just kind of fit best. Um, I know there's the endless debate about whether genocide is the crime of crimes, you know, legally, I think it's not really clear that there's any kind of hierarchy of course, but w- does that matter right? <laughs> if that's all people care about or if people do think that it's the most important crime? lawyers and other people there's only so much people can do to disabuse them of that notion even if they hold it um so it was generally was largely crimes against humanity court um and then when it comes to the kind of potential versus actual kind of scope and application of international criminal law if i'm kind of interpreting your question correctly um that's kind of what i focus mostly on in the book right Um, I know my book can be, and frankly, it has been read as like a kind of call for expansionist call for like expanding international criminal law, coming up with new crimes, uh, you know, adding to the Rome statute or wherever else, adding to custom. Um, That's not how I envision it. And I tried to be pretty careful with my language in it is that it is more a call to say, if we have this thing, and to be honest, I'm pretty, I remain pretty ambivalent about the existence of international criminal law at all. Um, But if we do have this thing, um, I think um, I'm concerned that we're not really exploring all the different ways in which, you know, groups of people can cause mass harm to one another. um, And, we're just really looking at the subset of things um that are familiar that are spectacular that really make us uncomfortable when we are forced to look experience them look at them hear them smell them even um and uh i think um that there's often an assumption that the law can't do anything else and i think there's lots of reasons behind that which i'm happy to go into some of but i think you know one of them is just that you know we have an overabundance of of very obvious very aesthetically and otherwise paradigmatic atrocities that occur every year all the time um that are never prosecuted and many of them never even investigated so there's not really any kind of Internalized pressure within the kind of world of international criminal law to say, "Oh, where else can we go with the existing law?" Because, you know, we're sitting here looking at these obvious crimes that are not being investigated um, and especially not punished. Right. So, I think that there's a kind of structural forces at play there, uh, uh, and uh, and then it's going to be harder to to kind of pave new to to hoe new ground. Right. Um, why do that when, you know, you, you can pick any number of situations across the world and say, oh, you know, even from your armchair, even a non-lawyer can be like, that is an atrocity crime, you know, <laughs> and, and be right. <laughs>
2: right. Yeah, I, I mean, that just made me think of, uh, you know, I've done some writing on, on Yemen and uh, right now I'm working on a paper on on you know, coverage of the, of the, of the conflict, uh, comparing the coverage of the conflict in Yemen to that in Ukraine. And I was just writing the backgrounder and, you know, you have all these, you know, these eminent experts and human rights counts, other things calling war crimes in, in Yemen. Uh, and you know, they're repeated. So they're certainly verging on, uh, if not certainly systematic, um, but there will be no accountability. Um, so just thinking of one example of where it's, you know, if we want to, have international criminal law be, uh, getting into other things like, like famine crimes. And I think they're, they're already not holding those accountable for these very, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, very visible atrocity crimes that we all know are happening. Um, so, um, so I I guess maybe just quickly
1: comment on that. Sure, sure. Yeah, because um so um I know folks at places like Global Rights Compliance, which is a great um law firm and NGO, you know, have been working on Yemen issues and they're really frustrated. <laughs> um they've been working on them for years. And one and I know some of the people there, and one of the reasons we've discussed is you know, starvation and famine is one of the biggest killers in Yemen. And once the war kind of the you know, the kind of most active part of the war turned into smaller skirmishes and a lot more of the suffering was due to deprivation and starvation and famine, you know, it kind of dropped off the radar to, to a large extent. Um, and that includes, I think, kind of prospects for accountability. Um, so I'm, I'm not saying I'm right all the time, um but i i i think you know in those discussions that really came through to me um and i'd be interested to hear what what you think about it. i i'm sure you know far more about yemen having i have not been kind of diving into that for a couple of years um about that dynamic right so it, there there does seem to be a kind of, you know, you talk about the attention economy, you talk about, you know, Paul Slovic and psychic numbing and things like that. There seem to be these forces at work. And I, I don't pretend that, you know, aesthetics is the only one um, that really kind of calibrate when and how we pay attention that have nothing to do with kind of like relative assessments of gravity or importance as fraught as you know trying to make those comparisons are in the first place
0: this episode is brought to you by sax.com at sax.com it's easy to find your new vibe dive into the western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from prada you can shop for everything on your agenda whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright chloe blazer for brunch find inspiration for your new vibe every day. At sax.com
2: Well, you know, I, I think you know, with, with what I'm working on now on, on media coverage, you can see you know the drop-off in media coverage, and you know, specifically the New York Times uh coverage of Yemen. Yeah, I and of course, you know, there's other things happening too, right? There's there's competition, right? So there's the next uh, uh, visible atrocity, and and there's of course geopolitics and other things as well. Um like I'm not surprised that uh, in the first like two months of the New York Times coverage of Ukraine, it has exceeded the coverage of Yemen over seven years that doesn 't really surprise me, but um, so i don 't want to say that there 's a causal effect here um, but I do see you know I can say that where the New York Times coverage of Yemen did drop off also seems to be when um, like you said, when the sort of nature of the conflict um, had uh, had transitioned. Um, and so it's, you know, which also, I guess maybe a question I would have, you know, back to you then is, or is maybe twofold and you might not, I don't know if you'll be able to answer the first one, but, um, you know, does the media contribute to maintaining an atrocity, um, aesthetic, uh, and also does international criminal law contribute to, uh, the atroc- atrocity aesthetic?
1: Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I don't want to dodge your question too much. So (laughs) on one level, I would say yes to almost any kind of grouping or category you would say, because I think, you know, at heart, a lot of my book is grounded in social constructivism and, you know, things are made and remade all the time through social interactions, according to that. And I do believe that to be true. Um, And uh, so I think we all kind of, more or less may um wittingly or otherwise kind of pedal in or or fall into these um processes because it's an easy way of recognizing atrocities right if we care about atrocity so i I do think the media of course um is involved i would you know i wouldn't say that it's necessarily them you know sitting around saying oh you know here's a great picture of a really awful you know dead body let's let's run that let's let's background this other one of of a person in the process of starving or or what or whatever it is um or even something that's much more neutral about like say like a new new say like a new citizenship law passed in, in myanmar that we know is going to cause mass harm but hasn't yet right um things like that so i don't, I don't think they're they're out there i hope they're not out there actively doing that but i think you know the media um and especially with the increased kind of defunding of public news and the kind of privatization of news of course market forces are at play and they are needing to sell paper and get eyes um and this is one way of doing it right you know susan sontag wrote about that quite a while ago among many other people um and I think when it comes to international criminal law, um, you know, I don't, uh, one of the things I think in the book that was kind of surprising to me is that I think that the inherent structure of international criminal law as a kind of Western, um, you know, criminal law based structure, which requires individual culpability and, um, Uh, a fair amount of causation or at least contribution to causation that's pretty direct being inherently limiting right i think uh, you know i went in thinking that it's the inherent limitations of the law um especially criminal law Um, and i came out thinking well you know a lot of international criminal law at least to me remains pretty nascent um given the dearth of prosecutions that we have of you know we have We don't know exactly what every provision of every component of every international crime, exactly where it ends, exactly where where modes of liability, which is a whole other arena, which is the mechanisms legally through which individuals are held responsible for what are invariably large scale group crimes, like how far they can reach. There's to me, there's a kind of this like outer frontier of international criminal law that is unexplored. And I don't know exactly what the boundaries are. I think there's lots of debate to be had about where they are, where they should be. But I just feel like it's not explored. And I think that kind of makes international criminal law somewhat complicit in terms of, yeah, it has its structural limitations, and it can't really as a neutral kind of just a thing, right, be blamed for that. But the failure to kind of figure out what it can't do i think is really important because we focus on it first and foremost and i don't think that's a good idea but i do think that's what happens
2: right (laughs) yeah is i I mean I, i i was thinking also about um you know, activists and human rights organizations, you, you mentioned the word complicit, and I don't want to make activists uh, complicit, but, um, you know, there's, of course, been lots of research on, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in genocide studies, right? So there's a lot of research on the use and, and misuse of the term genocide, uh, the use of the term genocide sort of sensationally to draw, you know, not... Um, not with ill intention, but rather to draw attention to whether it's genocide or not, to the plight that, you know, that groups or individuals are are facing. Um, And so I, I wonder, you know, Do advocates and activists, excuse me, and advocates, uh, human rights organizations, do they also contribute to the aesthetic through their, you know, engagement on social media, through the photographs that maybe they use to draw attention to their um, situation, uh, you know, in their human rights reports and what they focus on in human rights reports, you know, there's for a long time, Human Rights Watch and, and Amnesty International uh, did receive some criticism because they focused more on civil and political rights versus economic and social rights. And so um, have has all of this also contributed, contributed to the atrocity aesthetic?
1: I I think yes. Um, and I, I'll qualify that. So, I mean... I think there's two kind of two dynamics going on and two kind of separate debates, right? There's, there's first these debates about, while some organizations are calling, you know, X, Y, or Z a genocide. And it is kind of manifestly in terms of human suffering, um, if you want to take an anthropocentric view, but however you want to measure it, like of a lesser magnitude than what genocide at least legally is. Right. So something that is manifestly not a genocide, just let's get the, the cachet of genocide by throwing that word out there and being provocative. I think that can sometimes be a little bit irresponsible. Um, if, if potentially depending on the cause, you know, coming from a good place um i think you know that is not really contributing so much what is um and i i don't know like i would not use the word complicit here is i think that activists they're under this kind of pressure and tension right we live in this attention economy these ngos are also um unfortunately almost all donor based like they rely on donors for all of their funding and how they get donor attention is by getting broader public attention right so they they're in the business of getting attention and they're fighting for attention and resources and if they decide that this is problematic and they're going to you know, focus on structural justice issues, they're going to refuse to reproduce these things, it can come with some real cost to them, right? And they can just, if they fade into obscurity, does that really help things? Like, I don't, I don't know, right? I think those are difficult questions. And I do think um, some of the more thoughtful and responsible actors in this world, I'm sure... Have these debates like within their staff, right? And and how are we going to go about this? How are we going to responsibly represent these things? How are we going to try to get the issues we think are important up there? Um, and uh, I mean, courts do this as well, right? So there's a wonderful book by Christine schwobel Patel called "Marketing Global Justice." She talks about how the ICC itself engages in kind of marketing practices, but also almost like in, yeah, um, itself, knowingly or not, kind of uh, incorporates marketing logic into how it operates and how it presents itself, talking about kind of return on investment and things like that. Um, so I think it's very complicated, but I, I also think that it operates, the, the aesthetic operates to constrain activists and civil society organizations from the other end right so what really stuck in my mind was i did some grant writing right and there was a particular grant i think it was by USAID but it could have been by kind of any organization major grant funder um and it was for something like you know post atrocity transitional justice work human rights in the wake of atrocity those kinds of things i can't remember the exact language Um, And it was a worldwide call for applications, right? And it was for countries dealing with the legacies of atrocity violence and mass human rights violations. And, you know, it said, these are the countries, and they had a list that we define as being in that space, (laughs) right? And so it was predictable countries. Cambodia was among them, right? Colombia, other places that are kind of you know we would think of but you could imagine what if you're in another place where you know there's been this slow burning oppression and violence that maybe has involved arguably international crimes and you can't even apply for this funding to do this work i think that's also a component that i mean is perhaps more troubling to me of just kind of leaving people out of the conversation to start with
2: yeah. Um, so, I, I, you know, I, I'll ask you one more. <laughs> does this contribute to the atrocity aesthetic question? And then we'll we'll move on. Um, so, you know, I I, I wrote a sorry, I've an edited volume on cultural genocide, and um, you know, you mentioned cultural genocide early on in your in your book, and it made me think about. Uh, you know, cultural genocide and and how it doesn't fit the atrocity aesthetic. And you talk about this a little later in your book. um, And, you know, in the the intro to my edited volume, I I share a concern um, that cultural, you know, putting culture before genocide, you know, sort of presents it as something less than or other than just plain genocide. Um, And, you know, you share this concern in your book as well. And I suppose, you know, the question would be, um, do, did I, do I, have I contributed to it? Because even though I address it in the introduction, I nonetheless have a book called Cultural Genocide, a cultural genocide is probably used a thousand times, uh, between all the authors. Um, and you know, not just me, but do academics also contribute to the atrocity aesthetic through our research, through our engagement, maybe in public discourse? Um, and are there ways around, or ways to avoid doing that, even when you're trying to do something important or good or, you know, whatever value you want to attach to it.
1: Yeah, yeah. So um, uh, I'll let you off the hook. (laughs) Um, But uh, yeah, so actually, I've thought about this. So I'm from um, this where this comes up a lot amongst other places is in the context of Canada, which is actually where I grew up. I grew up in Ontario. And, um, you know, this whole kind of never ending debate against what happened and arguably is continuing to happen to indigenous populations in the territory that is now defined as Canada. Right. And, you know, settler colonialism. And was that a kind of genocidal process? Um, I will argue all day to you that it obviously was. And it's a joke. To say that it wasn't. And I would also uh, argue that it's probably settler colonial genocides have been among the most successful in terms of just taking what they wanted and then keeping it. Um, but you know, there's this, then there's this whole cultural genocide component, right? That floats around and some people will say it wasn't a genocide. And then they'll say, sure, it was, if you want to say cultural genocide, but then they'll say, that's not a legal genocide and that's not a real genocide. Um, and then that debate also goes on within genocide studies itself, which is kind of multidisciplinary. And honestly, as a legal scholar, I'm often the kind of one people don't want to talk to because we're the most annoying, um, thinking that we own definitions, right? Um, Which is not what I think, but I do see that. Um, And so to me, um, what's really put this into stark relief has been the recent exhumations of bodies of children murdered at um residential schools uh, sites adjacent to former residential schools in canada and how this has caused you know perhaps the millionth um quote reckoning of canada's dark history right Um, which in my view is not really a reckoning (laughs) because we haven't done anything much about it um but then Now, that has made the the kind of atrocity real to a lot of people in Canada. And it's increasingly happening where the residential schools, it's almost like in attempts to sanitize Canada's history, the, the residential schools have become a kind of cancer that needs to be excised. But it also needs to be disaggregated from everything else that was happening and Intim- intimately connected with the residential schools um, f- such as for example the mass removal of indigenous children through child welfare practices and policies which is talked about much less um, and so I think you know there is there's is accurate descriptive value in a term like cultural genocide um, mm-hmm. But often it is deployed, in my view, irresponsibly as a way of designating something as not a real, i.e, legal genocide when for me, uh, in many contexts, and I'm thinking specifically about Canada's right now, um, the what people describe as cultural genocide was merely just one component of a larger, traditional, classical genocidal process that was long-term and multifaceted right and so there's this kind of process so it's like once you can't deny right once genocide denial or atrocity denial is impossible for everything e.g. residential schools and what happened there then it becomes this like you would think okay well now let's have a full reckoning let's look at everything instead what seems to happen is okay next we're going to kind of disaggregate and disattach and then look at select things um and then still ignore the rest right and and i view the rest as being you know like child removals other things like that as the kind of interstitial material that binds together the kind of eruptions of more traditional forms of violence and that you can't really understand it if you don't mm. look at all of it together. I know that's a little bit rambly, um, but <laughs> it's something I've been thinking about recently. So it, it's kind of partially formed. Um, and I actually have a student, um, her name is Alyssa Kuchi, who has written, um, she's a member of the Nipissing First Nation who somehow found her way to Hawaii for law school Um, And wrote a wonderful paper um, uh, um, talking about this connection between residential schools and child removals um, that should be forthcoming in the Michigan Journal of International Law in the next year or so. So I encourage everyone to look at that for a much better articulation of kind of the rambling thoughts, because her and I have kind of talked about this a fair amount as two Canadians, and and especially with her particularized lived experience. Thanks.
2: Uh, Thanks, Randall. Um... So, you know, I I don't think I was planning on asking you this when we started, but um, since you've been thinking about this topic, um, that, you know, what and maybe this also plays into you know the, the constructivism. What what role did the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada play, and for who? I, I don't know if you want to take a stab at that,
1: even though uh, <laughs> we didn't we probably weren't big planning question. on it. <laughs> yeah. So the TRC in Canada. I mean, it's big, it's long the report is thousands of pages I can't pretend that I've read every bit of it I've looked at it many times ah, I'm still trying to figure that out um, because a lot of what's in it is really interesting and is a really progressive interpretation of things like genocide and discussion of connections including there's a part about um, child removals in there Um and so I think in some ways it was kind of a model, but then what has come out of that is is not a lot of kind of action. And there's all the calls to action. And then famously, Prime Minister Trudeau, years ago, um, part of his platform in getting elected was saying he's going to implement every, all of the calls to action. And then predictably, kind of the low hanging fruit of like, honorary stuff, you know, public apologies has been implemented but the hard structural stuff the stuff that's going to involve sustained consultation um, long-term processes of repair and redress doesn't really seem to have got much momentum Um, and also i think it's important to remember how the trc came about um you know i my kind of pessimistic position is that you know the government likes to say that pretend that it was some kind of like voluntary thing that they grew a conscience and decided it was time to address this history But there were, um, this is where the law comes back in, there were numerous individual lawsuits being brought by survivors of residential schools. And for various legal reasons, we can go into if you want, um, these were not time-barred tort actions because of the nature of the violations. And individuals were winning large settlements based on the abuse they suffered from the Canadian government. And then um, a couple classes were um uh formed where class action lawsuits were coming with potential billions or even trillions of dollars of liability for the canadian government at this point there was a negotiated settlement of these class action lawsuits which involved the creation of the truth and reconciliation commission um so in in one way you could frame it as a kind of money savings Exercise. If you want to be really kind of pessimistic about it, I think it was many things and many people who had very good intentions were involved, and I think it did do some interesting things. But I think it's a it's a complicated beast, and I, I'm still not sure. I don't pretend to be expert enough to really have a strong opinion about it. Um, although I would do would feel better if more of the calls to action seem to have really spurred actual action. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Yeah, I uh, I definitely am am of a bit of a cynic, and so um, I unfortunately, I suppose I wouldn't be surprised. Um, you know, I'm not surprised by what you said. Um, so, I, and I don't know if this also connects to um, the truth and reconciliation in Canada, but um, you know, when dealing with invisible atrocities, um, or I should just maybe say, with dealing with atrocities in general. Um, You know, for like war crimes and genocide, we have the planners, we have the perpetrators. Um, There's usually someone that blame can be assigned to Um, when dealing with invisible atrocities is is the sort of gray area around what's the specific guilty act? Who's the responsible party? What's the, can we prove some form of criminal intent? Um, do, Do these elements or variables contribute to the invisibility of some atrocities?
1: I think they do, but I think they do in a way that is different than is commonly assumed. And I'll try to explain that. So, there are lots of kind of structural injustices which in an oversimplified way no one is kind of c- criminally culpably responsible for because we are all complicit in in some way right um talking uh, about kind of global inequality and And poverty and things like that there are people that can be blamed for parts of this of course i don't want to pretend that there's not some very nefarious people out there profiteering off these um, but in a general sense there's these kind of structural injustices right um however i i try to point out in the book there are other instances where um the directness of causation may be there but the kind of modality of harm causation and what the actual guilty acts of individuals are, are both so unfamiliar that it is easy to just assume that there is no culpability, right? So to kind of make that more concrete, when you think about something like the Khmer Rouge era famine or other famines, right? there are policies put in place by a group of people and in the Khmer Rouge context, enforced with incredibly brutal um, repercussions for anyone who deviates that directly start to cause mass famine. The leadership is simultaneously obsessed with rice production, which is the primary form of food, source of food throughout the countryside and already was before they took power. Um, they see... That people are starving. They're taking way too much food, because that's their only currency. Um, They're doing it through all these bureaucratic processes that don't look like violence, for lack of a better word. Um, They're doing so at meetings. They are doing so through enactments, right? And these don't; these are not what we think of as like guilty acts. But then they are finding out people are dying, and then they're choosing to just keep doing the same thing, f- well and full aware that there's a massive human cost involved, right? And that's just one context. But I think often these kinds of slow, attritive forms of violence are perpetrated by and incredibly powerful actors often those associated with the state because they have the ability to kind of control the everyday intimate aspects of people's lives um you know to think of it um, i was thinking of like biopolitics it's just like you know they can disallow life if they want um through bureaucratic means right so it can often be very bureaucratic and slow um and yet If they know what they're doing, and they're not merely just letting it happen, but they're causing it, seeing it happen, then maybe they started off as negligent or non-culpable. But at some point, they are continuing to support policies and processes that are very directly causing harm on a very massive scale, and they are well aware of this and that is the moment that i try to identify in the book and say hey we should be looking at that because that actually fits quite well in a criminal law paradigm but it doesn't look familiar and it may lead us to people that we don't associate as being the kind of you know evil masterminds who are out bloodthirsty and out to kill that perpetrators of international crimes are associated with often stereotyped as um so that's kind of how i see that playing out um but i don't want to overstate the reach of international criminal law there's tons of awful stuff that that body of law should not and cannot address and is incredibly important and we should be spending a lot of time and energy and resources to address
2: and would uh you know I, i'm i was thinking about what you said um you know the, the the perpetrators or uh the responsible actors might not look like we um we typically assume to that they do um if if, this, if invisible atrocities were sort of brought more to the the foreground um would this Potentially, I mean, you talked about Canada already, but would this implicate global north states um, in ways that we don't typically um, sort of see or understand uh,
1: global north states? I think partially. I mean, I think it would often implicate kind of generally powerful actors. They can be powerful regionally. Um, They can be powerful globally. People with the ability to kind of control the lives, you know, socioeconomically, various ways of groups of people. And I think those are the kinds of people that they have at their disposal, various means that they can choose to use to cause mass harm, right? They have a military, they can order out to kill these people or they can, you know, if you think about like the situation of Rohingya people in Myanmar for decades before anyone really cared about it as an atrocity right it was stripping citizenship they couldn't work couldn't go places kind of death by a thousand cuts right and that's a, a global south country but i do think it, it it may often implicate the global north in terms of um our reach into other places places right and even when it comes to traditional atrocities you know you think about like in the canadian context canada has a bunch of multinational mining corporations that are actively or passively benefiting from extreme human rights violations all over the world. I mean, mining is a horrific enterprise in many places, right? And, of course, the focus is often on the local actors um, rather than the CEOs and whatnot, and that's nothing new, and I don't think my book, you know, really if that was the point of my book, I think it would be a pretty boring book (laughs) Uh, because I think lots of people are well aware of that. But I I do think that, and I also think um, something that's related to that that I've been thinking through recently, so forgive me if this is a little bit convoluted, um, I was gesturing at a little bit in parts of the book was, well, what does this tell us about what international criminal law actually does? And I think the one thing we can say is that, by and large, Actors in the global north have an outsized impact on international criminal law, both in terms of its substance and how it is applied and where it is applied and when, right? And I think I'm concerned that maybe one of the things ICL actually is really good at is you imagine the public, right? Turn on their news. Um, there's this famous quote from a famous Canadian case, the Finta case, where one of the justices says, talking about atrocities you know every time we turn on our television now it would probably be twitter other things you know we're daily assault our eyes are daily assaulted by images of atrocity right obviously that's upsetting especially to us that are want to think of ourselves as good global citizens as caring about people in other parts of the world and so when we see that right does that that might create some pressure to 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 carry out prosecutions because it feels like we're doing something then and then we can maybe let go. I, I, I'm, I've toyed with the idea of kind of catharsis right? We might be able to let go of some of that um, and that's part of what I'm concerned with because I think maybe international criminal law is actually really actually good at that. If it may not be so good at repressing atrocity it may be good at kind of letting us feel a little better because we feel like we we, so we see this bad thing. And then if we support the prosecutions, then they happen and we see this person in jail, then we feel like we've done something. And then we feel less harmed ourselves by seeing these really awful images. And that makes me uncomfortable because it's almost like viewers in distant places, often in the global North is a kind of like quasi secondary class of victims, which I think is problematic on various fronts.
2: Well, on that note, um, I will, uh, I'll, I'll wrap this up. And, you know, you, you said this is something you've been thinking about and something I like to ask uh, the people I interview as we, as we close is, um, is, it, is there something that you're currently working on? So you've been thinking about this. Is, is this something that you intend to do uh, for the research, writing um, publications on? And is there anything else that you're currently working on?
1: Yeah, so I am trying to think through that. I'm supposed to be writing up uh, uh, that as something along those lines, um, like ugly pro- atrocities, cathartic prosecutions is kind of the working title for a chapter for uh, an edited volume to be put out by Mark Drumble and Carolyn Fournet on the aesthetics of international criminal law. Um, I went to a workshop last year in uh, the UK where we, you know, lots of people were talking about different aspects of, of this, Um, So I'm supposed to be writing that up. I'm of course behind. Um, And then the other thing that this has made me uh, think about is um, I teach criminal law. um, And so I'm always have this tension. Yeah. Research international criminal law. And I'm, I'm kind of ambivalent about that, but I'm more and more um, erring towards abolition in the U S context because of You know, many, many, we don't have time to go into all the problems of the U.S. criminal justice system. And clearly, it shows me that more is not always better when it comes to criminal law. But also, I think it's reached such an extreme amount of harm being caused by mass incarceration, racialized mass incarceration in the U.S., and the awful conditions of confinement. I think of a phrase, I think it was Christina Sharp who describes it as violence as care of uh, what we do to inmates. Um, so I've been thinking through a project called um, American Carceral Atrocities, where I think through whether international criminal law might have something to say about the U.S. system of racialized mass incarceration and what that might mean for mass incarceration, but also what it might mean for international criminal law. Is this a, a non-criminal atrocity? Is it like, what is this system? Because there's millions of people being harmed um, and it's some of the harms are quite extreme. So that's kind of what I'm thinking about right now. But that's kind of my fantasy project that I've been thinking about, but perhaps not working on as much as I would like. Um, but it's just always in my mind. Uh,
2: that sounds sounds great, Randall. Thank you so much for your time, uh, and I, I look forward to to reading more of your work as it comes out. And uh, and you know, take care.
1: All right. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. This has been really, really great. And also, by the way, I'm an avid listener. So um, (laughs) thanks for your work as well. It really helps me kind of put things on my radar. And I've really found some great things and I enjoy the podcast. So keep it up.
2: (laughs) Thank you, Randall.